What's up guys, we're out at the Iowa State Fair and I got a Des Moines legend, Jim County. Here's what I think is most interesting is really synonymous with Des Moines in Des Moines leadership is the name Jim County. And at the same time, a lot of people know the name, but many either know some or all or none of ultimately really your story uh, in that time. So kind of break down for me sort of how Jim County became Jim County. Well, that's good and bad. I don't I don't pretend to be anywhere near all good, but I'll give you I'll give you a quick rundown. I I grew up in Des Moines near Roosevelt High School. Went to Dowling High School. It was the best four years of my life. I loved the old Dowling High School on the near north side. Made huge number of friends. When I went over there, I thought, oh boy, I'm a west sider and all these north, east, and south siders are gonna be really tough and kick my ass. And Did you go to Catholic schools and elementary school? Yeah, I went to St. Augustine's. Okay. Where a lot of, I've got 10 grandkids over there now. Yeah. Uh, but Dowling was wonderful. Uh, I got real active in this and that. Played sports, quarterback, point guard in basketball. President of my freshman, freshman, sophomore, junior class, president of student body, very active. So, you know, it was a great four years. I then went to Notre Dame where I didn't get active and I just recreated, hung out, didn't make a lot of friends because I wasn't uh, doing the right thing. Uh, but I stayed at Notre Dame for four years. I did graduate, not with any honors by any means, but. Uh, Patty, my wife, and I started dating freshman year in high school, age 14. So she's a huge part of my life. We've been together 61 years. Oh, good for you. Uh, and been married for 52 years. So Patty went to a different school. We broke up two or three times over that four-year college period, but then got married shortly thereafter. Went to uh, Iowa Law School. Somehow I did a really good job on the LSAT boards even though I did a miserable job at law school. So I left law school uh, a year after I started law school. I think that was voluntary, but I'm not sure. And Patty and I got married and uh, started having kids. I had my tail between my legs because I had failed at law school. So I got into this business, small business in the, in the bond business. Uh, and uh, shortly thereafter, hooked up with my high school pal, Jim Hoke, who went to Roosevelt, I went to Dowling, but we were great friends. And he, brilliant guy, great academic guy, uh, uh, photographic memory. He loved his years at Yale University and Stanford University. He went to Stanford Law School, Yale Undergraduate School. And we started the cable TV company in 1970. We were 26 years old. And he intended to stay in the Allers Law Firm. I intended to stay in the municipal bond firm. And uh, we hired management to do whatever needed to be done. But shortly thereafter, as the cable business was spiraling downward, it was a bad business. What What is the landscape? I mean, I think now everybody appreciates, like I turn on the TV, I answer my phone, like yeah. the internet's just magically there. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, <laughs> but all, what is that landscape well, in like 74, 75? What is the landscape of of that. I mean, there's no cable in the ground at that point. 
Now, there was nothing in the markets the size of Des Moines. And we really, when we began, we intended to only uh, secure the Des Moines cable franchise. And again, as I said, continue in our previous jobs. But the landscape was, was four television channels, NBC, ABC, CBS, and Iowa Public Television. That was it. So we... And that was through antenna? Well, so you got yeah. that on the antenna from the TV. Exactly. <laughs> Rooftop antennas. The guy yeah. who invented antennas is an Iowan. Really? Yeah. Uh, Randy Weingard is the son of the inventor of antennas from Burlington, Iowa. He's a great friend of mine down in Arizona. And uh, we used to fight him because we, we went after a lot of cable franchises in Iowa. There was an odd law in Iowa which required us to have a referendum to approve whatever action the city council had taken. So every, not every time, but most of the time we had a referendum, we would face opposition financed by the Weingard companies. Save free TV, vote no on cable TV next Tuesday. And we voted for the opposite, obviously, or urged people to vote for the opposite. So that's how we got going in Iowa. And then I'm making this it's a long story, I recognize it. I'll make it as short as I can. So we then, uh, because we had some activity, we quit our jobs. We committed ourselves to what was called Hawkeye Cablevision at that time, Hawkeye Communications, Hawkeye Cablevision. We had a number of names over the years. And uh, something great happened. It was very lucky and fortunate for us because cable was not a good business because there just wasn't enough programming. Uh, we, we used to mail programming through the U.S. mail, half-inch videotapes, three-quarter-inch videotapes. But then HBO committed itself to satellite transmission, and that's what made the industry. So as soon as there were satellites circling the Earth, uh, programming people, content people, imaginative people, Hollywood, Ted Turner, ESPN, MTV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, were able to produce programming, ship it to a satellite, and then have it distributed efficiently to originally 10-meter dishes than what we see now. So we were, in, we were very lucky because we were in business. We had engineers and marketing people and, and uh, operating people in our small company. But when satellites became available, cable TV blossomed. People would buy marginal, what was called basic cable TV service, just to be eligible to get HBO. HBO was uh, was uh, commercial free. There was nudity. There was profanity. It was pro it was television programming that nobody had ever seen. There were no VCRs. There was no videotape, anything like that. That was the that was the climate. And we were, you know, that was mid-70s, so we, Jim and I and our gang, worked uh, really hard from the mid-70s to the late 80s. We were going 120 miles an hour. We had airplanes flying everywhere. We were uh, very fortunate to be liked by Wall Street. We borrowed a lot of money. We raised a lot of equity. Uh, we were Goldman Sachs' biggest customer, 1986. Uh, which is amazing to me because we weren't that big of a company, but we raised a lot of money to finance our growth. And we became, a, you know, we became a, big, a you know, relatively big cable company. We were, I think we were the eighth largest in the country with a million 
200,000 subscribers, systems in Dallas, uh, San Jose, Wilmington, uh, New Haven area, lots in Iowa, et cetera, et cetera. And we, this is a little esoteric, but we, cable TV was so popular that it sold in Wall Street terms for a huge multiple of cash flow. So if we had a cable system that was worth, that had a million dollars of operating cash flow, it would be worth $15 million. Okay, 15 times cash flow. And what we did very cleverly, mostly on a part of my partner, Jim Hoke, a lot smarter than I was. We, I'll use the word arbitrage, we bought a whole bunch of uh, mundane businesses uh, for three and four times cash flow, added that to our consolidated cash flow, and Wall Street never distinguished uh, between the two. So we would buy it for three times, but our stock price would reflect 15 times. Right. So we became, you know, we bought TV stations and radio stations, and uh, we were the fifth largest billboard advertiser, outdoor advertiser. We didn't even know how to operate the business, but we bought it. Uh, bought lots of cable TV properties, Rio Grande Valley, McAllen, Brownsville, uh, that area in the Rio Grande River. Uh, we, just, we just became big in a hurry. And we, we uh, didn't own much stock, Jim and I, because we didn't have much money uh, when we were young. So we were vulnerable to an unfriendly takeover we being Heritage Communications. It was always a public company, Adam, from the very beginning. So we were vulnerable to an unfriendly takeover. There were rumors that the Bass Brothers were gonna take us over. So we got proactive and we uh, talked to a few of our friends in the business and offered them an opportunity to come look at us for the purpose of acquiring us. Long story short, John Malone, uh, brilliant guy, that time, TCI, now all the Liberty Media type companies in Denver. What came window is this? 1987. Okay. So he came in and uh, bought us. Uh, our shareholders paid a buck a share, a dollar a share in 1970, original shareholders, and sold uh, 1987, 17 years later, for uh, $34 a share. So they were very happy. Uh, in addition to that, John asked us to stick around and run it for five years and offered us what's, what, what are called stock appreciation rights, basically an earnout, where we were given X percent of uh, whatever value we created over that period of time, increased value. So Jim and I did what I think is a smart thing. We took half of what John gave us, and gave it to about 100 employees, coworkers and we kept half and uh, worked really hard for the next few years. We didn't make five years, we made three. And uh, that was a very good liquidity event for uh, 100 valued, loyal employees, as well as Jim and me. Because again, we didn't have much stock in the original deal, but we had significant investment in the stock appreciation rights. So that was uh, 1990. And uh, Jim moved to Dallas. We kept some of our assets in the new public company called Heritage Media. And we kept some other assets private that John didn't want, John Malone didn't want. 
So we operated those for a number of years and we sold the Heritage Media Dallas company to Rupert Murdoch News Corp. And we sold some of these other assets that we managed for a while to third parties and uh, Did all, Jim stay in the business? Jim stayed in the Jim, ho- Jim stayed was, in the- He stayed more actively, certainly, than I did. He uh, he got involved in uh, broadcast TV, small market TV stations, and uh, he's done he's done a lot more than I did. I frankly needed his brain power. I think I think I added to the strength of our team certain things, but I think Jim. Again, brilliant guy and wasn't afraid of anything. I was the operating guy and he'd just want to do the next deal and I'd say, no, Jesus, we we haven't absorbed the last three deals. We can't do yeah. that. And he won most of the arguments. And again, Goldman Sachs loved us and other investment banks yeah. loved us. So we had, there was no shortage of money. How do you how do you wrestle through that? I, I enjoy sort of the dialogue where you have like a true visionary. They're, they're idea guys, right? They sort of have this integrator that's more of a, they're, they're the operations person. Because a visionary might have 100 ideas and 90 of, 99 of them are no good. How, how would you sort of help work through, I mean, was that part of your role to help sure. sift through well, some of the, and, and really sort of find the ideas that made sense and were executable? Well, as a friend, more than an organizational chart, table of organization. Again, I was an uh, operating guy. I was president of the cable operation. But uh, you know, I was you know I played a role in that. Sure, uh, I made my share of mistakes too. I'm sure. But you know, Jim and I would argue tooth and nail, and he would always he's more persuasive than I. So I'd make my argument, and he'd make his argument. And I'd say, well, hold on, make my argument for me, and he'd always make my argument better and more effectively than I did. <laughs> and his style, God love him, we're still great friends. His style would be to argue, and then think about the substance of the argument and oftentimes come around to another person's way of thinking. That was that. So you just you didn't you weren't going to change his mind uh, on the spot, but you might change his mind or, or he might change my mind ultimately. And so it was a good twosome. Or it was a good dynamic. What do you feel like your guys' strengths were as leaders? What do you how, how did that differ? If you were to look back at yourself in that time, what do you feel like made you a great leader? while you were with Heritage? Well, he was, his strength, Jim's strength was, was uh, brain power uh, and uh, ambition. You know, he, he wanted to have uh, a large company. He viewed himself as a allocator of capital, not an operating guy. And, you know, frankly, I always valued operating. Operating to me is where it is. You've got to have, we have thousands of employees and, and Ultimately, our culture was such that they they trusted the home office, okay? And, you know, it, with all due respect to all of my teammates in that deal, I think I played a bit, bit of a role in that. I think they trusted me. Yeah. So I, I did my best to take care of those people over the years. And uh, that would be, if I have a strength, it would be uh, I love people and I like fairness. And let's, so they let's, took care of it. Let's stay right there because that, that's, I think, what's just super, I think that's the most interesting part in business is really sort of that human interaction, right? And as I think back, it seemed like there was sort of a generation of leadership that was sort of, sort of this, what have you done for me lately, right? Like most people aren't gonna do a buyout 
and then go back and share in that win with with the employees, right? I mean, that's an unusual thing. Yeah, it's too bad, but I'm you know, I'm a you're right. Making, you're making a good point. And I felt like leadership a lot was sort of more of this. Leadership was seen in like strengths, like I'm smart, I'm bright, I'm in control and not having this ability to sort of see the vulnerability. Like you just said, I, I know I made some mistakes, you know, in that. I feel like that's what, you know, how we started was people know the name Jim County as a leader, but what I've always heard is a, a good ability and a strength to just be vulnerable and be authentic. And that just seems so unique especially in that generation. And it's even unique now, but I think, I think there's unique now. I think there's a shift. I, I believe very much the new currency in leadership is authenticity and vulnerability. Good, I like that. What does that mean and how do you see that for leaders today? Well, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not immersed in what's going on uh, in various corporate cultures. Uh, like I used to be. So I don't know if I'm a good person to answer that. Well, but, what was it then? But I think, you know. Yeah, look, you talk about trust. Like, well, look well, at, how did look you at Warren that? Buffett. He's perceived as a fair, soft, wonderful, brilliant guy. He's got it all. But, you know, when Solomon Brothers had its problems, they brought Warren to Washington to testify. And he apologized. Okay? And, and you didn't see any uh, unfriendly questions directed at Warren Buffett because he's a humble guy. And he took responsibility for that company's mistakes. He was a large shareholder, and he chose to take responsibility. That's I like that. You know, I'd I'd rather give myself up before somebody has a chance to criticize me. Okay, so I'm I'm quick to say I was wrong, whether it's social or business or whatever. Uh, it just why don't guys do that? Well. What's the fear? I don't know. I really don't know. Some people do. You know. Some people is do. it the majority of the minority that that have a that have the strength to be vulnerable? Listen, I like I like the, your your line of questioning. I've never thought of of, of uh, this subject in terms of vulnerability, but I think it's a good a good word and a good uh, a good interest you have. So I don't know. Insecurity would be the quick answer. I mean, you got to right. cover your butt. Uh, you can't these days. It's so. I think it's in you know the bigger cities, especially the bigger companies, especially it's so difficult. If you if you're a hired hand, uh, you know you can't make too many mistakes, or you're going to be there's going to be a palace revolt right. in the boardroom, and you're going to be out of there. You read about something you know three or four times a week, yeah. like that happening. So I don't know. We we were a public company, and you know I, but I never felt that I needed to pretend to be something I wasn't. I don't think Jim did either. We had a very amicable relationship with our board of directors. It wasn't overly familiar to the to a fault, because I, I think there's way too much of that in the United States. Friendly boards that take care of the compensation packages for the senior management. That's not a good thing for anybody, except senior management. Uh, so that's something I disdain in today's greedy Wall Street world. I think that's, that's those are fair. That's a fair adjective, greedy. Um, here's a good here's a good example from kind of from the other day. We were we were talking before we came on here about sort of values and vulnerability. And like one of our core values is a willingness and a desire to serve others. And what's funny about it 
is I'm talking to my guys, my field guys. These guys take a ton of pride in their work. They're the first guy to jump up and want to help somebody. But, but to know their value in terms of a willingness and a desire to serve others is to be aware of the vulnerability of that, which is I got 15 guys who are the first guy to want to help, but none of them want help. So they don't, they're good at serving, but they don't want to be served. Well, I'm not sure I understand that. I think I would say based on the way you characterize that, the vulner a vulnerability there might be if I spend too much time helping people, uh, over the top helping people, I'm not going to deliver the product that our 16 person team is working on, on time and on budget. Yeah. Uh, so you gotta be, you gotta moderate your thinking to allow that supervisor with 15 people to take a little extra time and right. you know what what you might lose in margin on that one project you're going to gain in morale and corporate culture that will pay out tenfold yeah. over the years with a hundred other projects well it's kind of like with the like the guys in the field right they want to help other guys but needing help is seen as a weak <laughs> point if they they need help too many times that's like well then i can't do my job oh. So then they start to sort of protect their position. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's human so, nature. Yeah, so by the time they actually are willing to come and get help, they're in a, like a meltdown mode <laughs> where it's more part of saying, all right, the willingness and the desire to serve others is having this ability to sort of objectively assess. Well, I think one thing I assume you guys do because you're very, very successful, I think you hire carefully. And it's hard to hire carefully in a 2% unemployment environment right. okay but you know the time you spend hiring vetting interviewing i want you to have another interview and maybe even a third interview before we make a decision make sure you're comfortable and we're comfortable right that's well t t that's going to reflect itself in lower turnover there's no more expensive insidious problem in business than high turnover Right. And shame on management for, for hiring the people who are susceptible to being terminated or want to quit. Do you feel like your emphasis was on the actual ability to do the task or sort of their ability to fit the culture, which had more value? Well, again, we were, a, uh, I'd say, I'm not sure I can say which is more important. We did not have <coughs> the culture in 1970 that we had in 1980. We, you know, when you're losing money, we lost a lot of money early on. We were very, very lucky that HBO made that move to satellites. Uh, so we, you know, we, it was hard. It was difficult for our employees and for us. We had turnover that we were, we forced upon people because we couldn't afford to uh, follow through on some of our implied promises to new employees. But, uh, I don't know. I think once you get going, your your group of employees will almost self-monitor, and they won't allow bad behavior. Yeah, they'll get word to that person who needs to step his game up that something bad's going to happen unless you step your game up. And if he doesn't or she doesn't step their his or her game up. Uh, the supervisor's going to hear about it. The supervisor's supervisor's going to hear about it. Pretty soon that person's gone. Turnover. It costs you a ton of money. Hurts your corporate culture. Right. Avoid turnover at all costs by hiring carefully, paying fairly, 
motivating well. That's that's operations versus finance. Okay, most finance people, you know, they look at the numbers. Right. They, they don't really. I'm sorry, but they just don't appreciate how important it is to have a great relationship with your workers from top to bottom, top to bottom, top to bottom. And that's we had that. We had a employee attitude survey about that 1980 time. Hey, associates came in. Long story short, they told us at the end of the survey they had never seen a company that had higher morale than our company. That's incredible. It was incredible. Great, such a nice thing to hear. You know, what what, what do you feel like is the biggest? What do you attribute that that to the most? Well, we were fair to people. Again, I I can only speak to the really the cable people, but we were fair to them. You know, we paid fairly and we rewarded uh, fairly, and. Uh, People knew that, you know, we weren't, you know, honestly, you know, I, I worked hard to not let uh, a financial culture usurp an operating culture. Now I said a mouthful, I probably took too much credit with that sentence, but that's, yeah, no, I worked makes hard sense. doing that. So in terms of relationships, something I think is interesting is, you know, and, and it's been written about is a relationship with Bill Knapp and I think this is sort of in twofold and, and probably as much about sort of maybe the current political environment where you have two guys that politically disagree, but come together for the common good. What can you really speak to sort of that relationship and how that relationship can sort of be looked at in this current political environment? Yeah. Well, I think you, you, you said that well, you know, Bill's a passionate, Democrat. I'm not a passionate Republican, but I'm a fiscally conservative Republican. Bill loves politics. Uh, you know, he supported Republican Governor Branstad generously for years. So he's not afraid to cross the aisle. I'm certainly not afraid to cross the aisle. Hung out with Governor Vilsack last night. I love the guy. He's really good. That's a guy I would support regardless of political affiliation on anything. Uh, Bill, Bill and I are a little different. He. I'm conflict averse. Bill kind of likes conflict. You know him well. Uh, he's not afraid to uh, pretend to lose his temper if it will advance his his side of the argument. We joked about that yesterday. He and I hung out on a ride out in the country, looking at some the farm that we owned together yesterday for a couple hours. We had a great great time. Reminisced. Uh, he was with. Some old guys last night had a lot of fun talking about the old days. So he's 93 years old, but he's, you know, he's he's seen a lot, and uh, he's a fair-minded guy, and he's a he's he's not afraid to to yell and scream if it's if it's going to advance his position, and that that's okay because if you know him well, it's just just an act, you know, most of the time it's just yeah. an act. But we've had a good uh, good good relationship. I'm 18 years younger than Bill. So I've studied at the feet of the master uh, socially and certainly in the real estate area for a long time. Uh, I'll never be anywhere near the real estate person he is. He has good judgment. He has good judgment in general, uh, not just on a real estate project, but people. So I value my friendship with Bill a lot, uh, continue to learn from him at age 93 and uh, hope he lives a, a, lot, a, long, a lot longer. How did you, you know, once you sell the company, you get out of the cable business, what was that driver for you 
that you sort of reconnected with your passions. I mean, what what has really been something that sort of continue to give you purpose? Like I was like the analogy of like an NFL football player. They've been in the NFL their whole life. Like that's where they sort of got their sense of self-worth from. And you've built this company, you've built this culture, and now there's a day you don't have that. How did you sort of reconnect with that sense of, of purpose? Yeah, I did, uh, the answer to the question is community, but I'll come back to that. You know, 1987, when we decided to sell the business, we were on a walk in California, Jim and I, and you know, not only did we observe that we didn't have real control over our own destinies with small amount of shares that we own, but you know, we were arguing a little bit, we were arguing perhaps more and more. So, you know, again, Jim wanted to be part of, wanted to be the captain of a much larger ship. And I was kind of afraid of the next deal because I, you know, again, I was worried about yesterday's problems. I hadn't, they hadn't been solved yet, okay? Operational problems. Not easy to do business in the Rio Grande Valley or Compton, Colorado, uh, some of these crazy places we did business. So I was relieved when we agreed to preemptively market Heritage Communications. Uh, Jim, I'm sure, was not as happy as I, because he, he I think he was, de- he, he was prepared to derive even more uh, enjoyment out of check- captaining a larger ship. So it didn't bother me at all. It kind of relieved me because it, it, it eliminated uh, arguments with a really good friend, Jim Hope, put a little money in our pocket, allowed me to not worry at night about problems around the country, et cetera, et cetera. And I had something to fall back on. I loved Des Moines. I've always liked Des Moines. I had conflict with Jim and others in the company about that. Are we a good corporate citizen or are we uh, a good employer? And our job is to employ, those guys would say. My job, my, I would say, well, yeah, we employ, but I, we also need to recognize that the companies in which we operate, the cities in which we operate, need to have our support too. So I've always believed in corporate citizenship and philanthropy, and I don't believe that cities like Des Moines, for example, can uh, be great without philanthropy. You know, taxes can pay for streets and sewer and water and things like that, but they can't pay for things like the Papa John Sculpture Park and the carousel and park on the north side and, you know, all the things that we've done in Des Moines to make it uh, competitive uh, these past 10 or 15 years. You know, we had nobody living in downtown Des Moines to speak of 15 years ago. Right. Now it's packed. Right. So I love Des Moines. I wish I were younger to see uh, more progress in this city. I'm 75. Hope I've got another several years to watch the development of this capital city. Uh, I like knowing what's going on with the city council and the Polk County Board of Supervisors, to a lesser extent, the state capitol, uh, and much lesser extent, Washington, D.C. Because yeah. I'm very frustrated with what's going on there, and I don't think we Iowans, or certainly this small Iowan, can play a role in that. But I think I can uh, continue to participate in local matters, and that's, that's, where I, that's what I do. Yeah. When you think back, and, and I've really enjoyed you taking the time to have this conversation, because I think you're, I just think you're a very unique person and a very unique leader. Uh, 
just in in the sense of just that right your authenticity and the more i feel like you get out there the more you realize guys like you are are the minority but are the ones that people are hungry for the most which is probably why we're tired of washington politics right because i think on a local level you can you can be authentic and make a real impact in people's day-to-day lives what it what do you attribute that to who is that leader or who are those leaders that you really looked up to that you took away from that you sort of attribute your character to yeah. first guy i mentioned is bill now but there was a you know there was a you know i'm like the eighth generation of of uh, people in this town who might care about it but uh there was a, you know, Des Moines Development was a great organization. It was a group of, uh, of individuals who represented corporations who contributed five-figure stipend into an annual fund that could be used to make civic improvements, okay? It was run by Bob Hauser, a former CEO of Principal Financial, for a dollar a year. He kept the minutes on a yellow legal pad and he had a little office somewhere and he he was selfless I mean he was just a wonderful guy so he ran this 40 person deal I was fortunate enough maybe when I was still working and certainly after to be part of that and it was great fun because these men and women could argue around a rectangular or square table for an hour and a half and yell and scream and then at the end of the meeting uh, somebody like John Ruan or Bill Knapp would step up and summarize where that smart person thought we should be and generally speaking the other 38 people would fall in line and we'd, we'd make a decision. You know, no committees, uh, no second meeting, we just did it. That's how a lot of the vision plan stuff happened. Fred White's another great guy who's still very active in the community, was very instrumental in helping put into effect some of the stuff that Mario Gandolsonos' vision plan suggested, particularly Gateway West. Because Fred and Des Moines Development and some of the corporations took it upon themselves to put money into a fund that that went and that helped buy out all those single-story businesses. Uh, all the way from Meredith Corporation to where the library is now, really including the library. So those are the guys, the old Des Moines development days. Uh, they cared, Bob Burnett, Meredith Corporation. These are my heroes. You know, I've learned how to run a meeting and how to shut up and listen uh, from some smart people. And I, I didn't, I, I'd love to see a list of the old guys. I forget a lot of the names, but it was a, it was a terrific deal. Well, it's funny being a guy doing a podcast, but the best advice I've gotten recently is never pass up an opportunity to shut up. So <laughs> uh, with that, I really appreciate you, you coming out and, and yeah. having this conversation. It means a lot. No, you're a good guy. Thanks, Adam. No, thank you so much. You're a good guy. I'm uh, impressed. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing.